You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. I guess it's a way of trying to kind of make sense of it because you can just let it pass through you, you know. It's rather than having to rationalise it, just present it in its ugliness. I know that some artists choose to go the other way and like avoid, you know, in times of crisis or in times of turbulence, you need something to escape to. But I've never been that way. I think you don't get stronger by ignoring what you see. You have to come to the real world every day and try to make sense of it rather than hide from it. I'm Kelly from Block Party, and our album Alpha Games comes out on an infectious BMG label on April 29th. bands to emerge from the British post-punk revival of the early 2000s. Led by frontman Kelly Okorecki, the quartet, which included Russell Lissick, Gordon Mokes and Matt Tong, released Silent Alarm in 2005, one of the era's most successful and seminal albums. While they've never been able to repeat that kind of success, Kelly has always been clear that they're not interested in retreading old ground. For him, Each album has been a reaction to the one before, an attempt to do something new or different. Now 20 years, five studio albums and two new members later, they've released Alpha Games, an album with themes rooted in this moment of turbulence in government and turmoil in society. Yet, thanks to new blood in their current lineup, Alpha Games does share many of the sonic hallmarks from their debut. But before we discuss this further, Kelly takes us back to his childhood, growing up with West African parents who immigrated to Liverpool, then moved to Edinburgh before finally settling in the suburbs of East London. I understand you grew up in London and that Mm. your parents had immigrated from Nigeria to Liverpool where you were born. Mm. So what was it like for you when you moved to Manor Park in in East London? Like how old were you at that time and what was that like? I definitely remember living in Edinburgh in Scotland Mm -hmm. and then we drove for like a whole day it seemed from Scotland to London with my family in the car and and our things and that was like a massive road trip that I remember Mm -hmm. it was slightly weird because I had like a Scottish accent when I arrived at school in East London I just think people thought I was an alien or something and so I quickly lost that which is a shame because I can't even do a Scottish accent now it's weird to think that I had a completely different voice when I started but I think that's probably why I speak the way that I do it's weird like I didn't really speak like any of the other kids in East London where I grew up and I mm. I still I still don't really speak like any of the other kids in East London from where I grew up this weird kind of classless accent mm. it feels like it was so long ago I feel like living in East London it was really the start of my life 
So you have an older sister. Yes. What was a perfect day like for you growing up in your family? A perfect day. We were very close, I think, when we were that age, my sister and I. Yeah, by the time we'd moved to London, you know, we'd been in Liverpool and then Scotland. We kind of always depended on each other. Mm. We'd been through a lot of travelling together. So mm. obviously when we became teenagers, she was on a different planet or something and I was <laughs> in a different planet because we were different years at school. Yeah. You start having your own separate experiences. But, but before then, yeah, we, we were very close. You know, perfect day would probably involve lots of playing. Where we lived, there was a, I guess, a, like a play park mm -hmm. just in the estate that we lived mm -hmm. that had like a swing on it. Mm -hmm. I remember we used to spend a lot of time on the swing mm -hmm. trying to get it to go all the way around. <laughs> um, and then we'd come back home and... Watch children's TV, like Saturday morning cartoon type things. Her mum would be cooking. We'd probably eat something. What would your mum be cooking? Was it food that she grew up eating or just like your regular fish and chips? <laughs> no, my parents mainly cooked West African cuisine when, they, when we were growing up. That was all we really knew. It was kind of exciting eating British food. <laughs> It was seemed kind of exotic <laughs> to me because it was something that we never really ever saw. You know, I remember when, when we started going to school and having school dinners, being like, what is this? You know, what is this food? Yeah, and then having two different types of cuisine, you know, like I guess West African food in our house and then at school kind of English food. Yeah, so it's like you, you get used to straddling that those two different yeah. worlds, don't you? Have you been with West African cuisine? Like, I mean, I'm not familiar with it. What is something that you would eat? There's lots of rice. Mm -hmm. I guess a favourite was kind of jollof rice. Any kind of West African person will know jollof rice. It's kind of like a rice dish with meat and tomatoes. Um, and then, yeah, there was like yams. And then black-eyed peens was a lot of mm. plantain. There was a lot of... My parents also cooked the, this thing called ground rice, called like agussi, mm -hmm. which is like this type of paste. They all sit around in a circle and eat in a bowl. You take bits of this paste and roll it into a ball in your fingers and you dip it in the soup, the mm. the kind of okra or agussi soup. But I always really hated it. I always really hated the consistency of the, yeah. the kind of the yeah. balls that you'd make. And I could never swallow it. I just it was it was just so gross. It felt like I was eating I don't know, what did it feel like? It felt like I was mm, it felt like I was eating like slugs or something. I remember we had quite a few tense standoffs at dinner time when my parents would cook it and I just would refuse to eat it. So in the end, they gave up and just would just cook me rice dishes like rice and stew or jell-off rice or fried rice. That was kind of my main staple was rice and it still is now. Okay, so what's a memory of your childhood that kind of really makes you smile? When I think of my childhood, the one thing that I do look back on slightly fondly which I didn't eat at the time, was there was lots of kind of churches in my childhood. My mum was really kind of very Catholic and would always kind of make us go to church, like on a Sunday, often on weekdays as well. So it was like you couldn't escape it. And it was something at the time that I wasn't really into at all. Looking back on those experiences, I have to say that I am kind of thankful that she did do that, that I was exposed to like churches. Uh, I think mm -hmm. now I rarely go in churches, but when I do, mm. I was just in a church last week and I was really taken aback by how, how kind of serene the spaces are with the high ceilings and the stained glass, this iconography. I don't really agree with mm. the teachings of, I guess, the Catholic religion, but I do respect these kind of ornate spaces that people come to worship in mm. and just places to be still and, you know, like temples. Mm. I'm glad that I was exposed to that from an early age. And, you know, and it wasn't something I understood. It was something that maybe took like decades to really come to to a sense of peace with. Now I kind of, I miss, I don't know, I guess they're a sanctuary, aren't they? Yeah. Churches, a refuge for people to go into themselves and mm. to reflect. You know, I'm kind of glad that I was exposed to that because I can now appreciate those spaces a bit more. What is the flip side of that? Do you have a memory that makes you sad? A memory that is maybe like a loss of innocence? I mean, the first memory that comes to mind is my mum 
had like a miscarriage I remember um when you know she was carrying twins and she lost them you know I never seen my mum so sad really mm. just like she was a broken person I think that's probably the first real sad memory that I have I would have been I don't know around 10 I think mm. I remember seeing her in the hospital and she looked like she was like a, a ghost or a zombie or something she didn't look like she wasn't really there but it's kind of a blur mm. it's kind of fuzzy when you when you try to dig back into the past it's hard to hold on to like tangible dates and times and it stayed with you that memory obviously seeing my mum like that I'd never I'd never seen her so my mum is a very charismatic woman and she's full of life it was like completely gone from her yeah. you know which is understandable because she was grieving yeah it's something that made me think about a bit more over the years interesting you know, when you were younger, do you have like a, a, a moment or a time when you first realized that music was like transcendent, that you, you were listening to something and you're like, wow, this can take you somewhere else? The first album I really fell in love with was Dogman Star by Suede. Oh, um, it's weird. I saw a video of a Suede song just on television and I was completely hooked by it. And I went out and I bought... Dogman Star, but like I didn't know what the song was. And the song that I saw was a song called Stay Together, which isn't on Dogman Star. <laughs> so I spent like months thinking, oh, had I imagined this song? Or like, did it exist? Because it wasn't on the record. And I kept thinking, like, where is it? And yeah. um, my initial thoughts was slightly disappointed. Yeah. And like the album itself, I remember just these kind of weird, kind of metallic sounding guitars and this throbbing reverbs. I remember that the first song on that album is a song called Introducing the Band and I'd never heard anything like it. Yeah, it, it really it took me months of listening to the record obsessively yeah. before it started to really reveal itself to me. And when it did, it really took me somewhere else. It was just this vast kind of cinematic, sprawling, almost noir-esque feeling that I got from the music and it, and it really evoked... You know, I was, a, I guess I would have been in my early teens, but it really evoked a sense of kind of, a, a kind of seedier, darker side of London, which is something I've always really loved about Suede, mm. is that that I really think of London when I think of Suede. I think of the dirt and the grime and the romance and the danger, the stories, the characters and Brett's voice. I didn't know that music could make you feel like this, that it could make you feel so many emotions. And that was really the first time I fell in love with a record. I must be a little bit older than you. And so I remember being a journalist in Singapore, where I'm actually from, mm. and um, the the album after that. Coming up, yeah. That was the yeah. album that we were all talking about because of Dogman Star. Then it also had so many hits, and there was like trash yeah. and all the rest of that on yes, the album. Yes, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned coming up because that was really the album after it kind of it kind of took me out of the love affair with the band, if I'm honest, um, mm. just because it kind of it seemed a bit like a kind of kind of saccharine version of what I felt they were about. Like, I felt that a lot of the drama wasn't there. It just seemed like, it just seemed like kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to get into trouble if, <laughs> if you use this. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the album that to me, I kind of fell out of love with them with that record. They kind of became something else. It, it became a to me, a bit more kind of commercial sounding, like they were trying to slot into a kind of Britpop zeitgeist, um, which I get, but like, I think I loved their music because they were outsiders and, and it was something a little kind of darker than just farcical British identity. Mm. Carry on films, you know, there all seemed to be something kind of seedier in, in those first two suede records, something a bit, I don't know, I couldn't put my finger on it, but yeah, so, it's weird. Coming up was the most successful record, mm -hmm. but it was also the point that I kind of was started starting to gravitate towards other things musically. While his peers were reveling in Britpop, Kelly had developed a more discerning taste. 
In his select group of alternative music fans, he would soon find someone that not only shared his tastes, but was also interested in making this more left-to-feel music, and that was guitarist Russell Lissick. It was at Reading Festival that you decided to start Block Party. So which of the bands on the bill that year, because I think it was like Blur, Charlatans, Catatonia, those sorts of bands. What about being at Reading and like which bands did you guys see that really fired you guys up to be like, <clears throat> okay, let's start a band? This has become a bit like a folklore mm, yes. type thing about us um, forming at Reading. It's kind of complicated because technically we were at Reading Festival when I asked Russell to join a band, you know, but I already knew him prior to that yep. because where I was going to school in Essex by this point, you know, there weren't many kids that were into alternative yeah. music. So the kids that kind of did were into alternative music, they all kind of knew each other in the area because they would all go to parties together you'd kind of stand out like Essex is kind of quite a laddie type suburb and the kids that were weren't into that all kind of knew each other because you, you kind of had to have each other's backs yeah so I kind of knew Russell in our group we would all decided to go to the music festival together there's probably about 20 kids mm -hmm. yeah Russell I think Reading was when I asked when I plucked up the courage to ask him if he would be in a band with me because um, I didn't know him that well. Yeah. Um, but and, and he said, yeah, he, he said he would. Um, <laughs> but, like, I can't remember any of the acts that were playing at all. <laughs> I think, I think like, people keep saying, like, New Order and stuff are playing, but I can't remember seeing New Order. All I can really remember is just being drunk and high the whole time, just stumbling around. <laughs> um, I can't, I can't, I can't remember any music at all from when I asked him. But there was a kind of amusing situation with like tents, like finding yourself in other people's tents. Um, but I can't really remember any of the music, which is probably a shameful thing to say. Rather than rule Britannia, Kelly and Russell were more interested in the discordant rock coming out of America, from alternative acts like the Pixies, the more experimental noise of Sonic Youth and the electronic cross-genre sampling of DJ Shadow. For a year, Kelly and Russell wrote songs together, and then they put an ad in The Enemy for a basis, listing those influences, including Joy Division. Gordon Moakes answers that call and is soon added to their lineup, but it's not until drummer Matt Tong joins the band that Block Party is born. In 2004, Block Party burst onto the scene with their single Helicopter, the perfect embodiment of their sound, jagged, frenetic and seething. It was an instant hit, and the following year they released the critically acclaimed Silent Alarm, which went on to stunning commercial success around the world. That album becomes like a defining album of their era, mm. and the band just goes in this trajectory, mm. uphill trajectory, right? But how long is it before it started to sort of like take its toll on you as a band? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Um, uh, so what exactly? So uh, what exactly took its toll? Mm -hmm. It was a question. Like, what exactly are you asking? Took it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. It Okay, so like within four years, you have like three top yeah. 10 albums, but there's like a lot of talk about like potential breakups and uh, rumors like involving drugs. And, and then you go off and work on your solo albums and then there's other yeah. projects and then you manage to come back. And you've said before that it's like you're like four British young men that aren't the best at expressing yeah. yourselves or your emotions. But in spite of yeah. all that, you manage to 
make these albums that your fans really yeah. love. Yeah. So it takes its toll on you guys, but at the same time, it's like yeah. all this tension and friction mm. also bears fruit in some way yeah. in block parties. Yeah, I mean, the thing for us, you know, with our previous members was that although we maybe found, you know, talking about our feelings quite difficult, it always seemed to be quite instinctive when making the music. Like, you know, there wasn't much explaining to be done then. So I think that was why we kind of, you know, whatever was going on internally in the band, we were always able to be quite professional and also quite prolific. We were able to work quite quickly. Is there a block party song for you that it's very kind of symptomatic or endemic of that period where like it was like so much tension, but it came out in the song and it was perfect in the song? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like maybe French Exit from um, the Next Wave Sessions was probably the closest that I got to maybe describing the feelings that were going on kind of behind the scenes with each other. These are some lines from French Exit. I wish I could say that at least we had fun. Thanks for the memories, but we know there were none. What's amazing is that even after those damning lyrics, all the bad press and rumours of a breakup, the foursome band together on their fourth album, the aptly titled Four. While it's declared that the album is a return to form, hinting that it's maybe as good as Silent Alarm, Kelly had always resisted this idea of looking back. After a weekend in the city and intimacy, two albums that incorporated synths, samples and electronica, four was the natural next step. A back-to-basic sound of four musicians creating music in a room without too much technical wizardry. And it brought forth some of Block Party's best songwriting. Kelly's writing is often filled with gritty scenes of a disaffected youth. Informed somewhat by his race, identity and sexuality, and in those early years, his inability to discuss these things openly, the darker, most seductive side of living in a modern metropolis like London, is another classic theme on block party albums. On 4, there's a clarity of thought and execution. Songs like The Healing and Day 4 highlight the elegance and the evolution of their sound. turned out to be their swan song. In the wake of it, Matt Tong leaves the band in 2013. Gordon Moog departs in 2015. When Kelly and Russell return with their fifth album, Hymns, the tenor of the songs shifts gear. Kelly had released two solo albums and come out publicly as a gay man. He had shed some of that youthful angst and not long after would become a father. Songs like The Love Within, Electronic, Club Ready and Euphoric signal this new sense of excitement and possibility. All loved and now ring for, the love. 
By the end of the tours for hymns, bassist Justin Harris officially joins Block Party. Rather than have another man, Kelly was keen on having a woman at the drum kit. Eventually, they found 21-year-old drummer Louise Bartle. When Silent Alarm's 10th anniversary had come around in 2015, Kelly had cringed at the thought of touring the record in full. But now, with Justin and Louise, it seemed like an entirely different proposition. What sort of like dynamic did they bring to the sub- subsequent tours for hymns and then also for like Silent Alarm's anniversary tour? Yeah, I mean, I think for hymns it was slightly difficult for because you know mm. f- for them because we didn't really you know Louise didn't play on hymns at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Justin played a bit in places, but you know hymns you know was a very much a transitional record for us, for Russell and I because you know we were finding out this new mm. way of working with just the two of us and we did it all in the studio mm-hmm. and it was something that we wanted to do, but. Um, it wasn't really like a band collaborative process. And obviously for the Silent Alarm shows, we were just playing a record that we had made, you know, whatever in the past. So mm. so I don't think Louise and Justin have had a chance to show what they're capable of as musicians until really this album, Alpha Games. Mm. So, you know, I think it felt like a bit like grand, you know, like year zero or something for, for us. Not year zero, but the kind of like block party 2.0 mm. that that we were similar, but chemistry was different, but it was still part of the same family, that, that we'd evolved into something else. Yeah. That's, kind of what it, that's kind of what it feels like to me. Much of 2018 and 2019 touring Silent Alarm internationally. And it was during sound checks in venues across America and Australia that they started jamming ideas that would become the songs of Alpha Games. And also why their latest album has more than just a passing resemblance to their debut. Louise, who was 10 when Silent Alarm was released, is a big fan. An incredibly proficient drummer, she also contributed beyond the drum kit given Block Party 2.0 an added dimension. And a song like If We Get Caught, for me, it's mm. quite exciting to hear a female voice on a Block Party song. Mm. Me too, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this song next to, I think, Rough Justice is one of my favourites of the album because it's kind of beautiful mm. and dreamy and there's a cinematic yeah. mm. quality to it and like a, a road movie, yeah. Us Against yeah, the vibe. World. Uh, feel yeah. about it, you know, the money in the glove box, the burners on the dash, the getaway yeah. car. Um, how did this song for you come together? And also with Louise actually singing, singing on it, yeah. whose idea was that? Well, yeah, it's funny because, like, as I said, we started making the record in 2018. And we, we you know, and throughout 2018 and 2019, we, we had, like, periods where we were writing more material. But... This was one of the first songs that we wrote in 2018, and I personally didn't really want to take it any further. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any lyrics or any melodies, but just the backing track. But Louise really was adamant that she really, really wanted us to keep working on the song, even though nobody else seemed to really want to. But her kind of enthusiasm for it made me think, actually, there might be something there. If she can hear something in it that we can't hear... Mm-hmm. We need to see what, what there is there in this song. So we persevered with it. And the lyrics didn't come until later. By then, I kind of had a sense of what I wanted the album to say and for it to, mm. to do. And this idea of this kind of last kiss before impending doom was just an image that seemed quite resonant with the record, this kind of Thelma and Louise type situation, you know, of mm. knowing that the game is almost up, but 
you know, wanting to steal a moment of tenderness before shit finally hits the fan. And it just seemed to really make sense. Um, Louise's voice takes it somewhere completely different. And it's, and it's really, really interesting hearing my voice with a female voice. You know, it's the first time we've ever done that. And, and it's something I'd like to do more of. I'd like to write more with male and female voices. It's, mm-hmm. I wrote a musical a few years ago and it was really really fascinating kind of working with ensemble voices and just the differences in tone and expression that you can kind of muster from different voices i became a lot more confident about you know working with other voices and i think that this was a song that i wouldn't have felt confident enough to have been able to do kind of years ago but i think with what i've learned from working on the musical was just a sense of ambition i guess being open to try new things block party have never shied away from a darker side but on alpha games kelly pulls no punches in exposing the rot hey fun size this is your first time let me show you things that they warn you about you've got right i like that mentioned something about like being able to like be at the stage write these songs and mm. like I feel like um you know you, it's like maybe you said like in the past there were things that you wouldn't you put a more rosy tint or maybe tie yeah. out your songs more in a bow like now it was like important to see like the ugliness which mm. I feel really comes through in most of the songs like mm. in traps you know you have this kind of people in positions of power mm. who prey on often underlings or you know folks that yeah. are supposed to protect so I For feel sure. like like that is in traps why did you feel like you had to write about this sort of thing? Did did it sort of like like for something like traps in particular? I love that line. Cute. Speaking yeah. of lines that like really bring you in, like cute like Bambi, but you're headed to a trap. I mean, like it's just like so yeah. evocative of the whole kind of Me Too movement, you know, and people just abusing yeah. their power. Yeah. And the Jeffrey Epstein's Bill Cosby, yeah. Harvey Weinstein, all these people just come to mind and also the i love yeah. the fact that louise really keeps up with the drums because like you know you always hear people talk about oh like you know she's not as good as um you know matt tong and all the rest of that and here yeah. you're like wow she's better than matt tong she's technically a better drummer than matt tong and i think it was important that people could hear that on the first thing that we did, Traps. Our old drummer was a very you know, great inventive musician. As someone that was in a band with him for years, you know, he will admit himself that he wasn't the best timekeeper. Some of our live performances from the past, you know, aren't the most cohesive with Louise. She's just a different style of player from someone that's been in a band with her and our previous drummer, I felt like people needed to see what she was actually capable of. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I don't know how we got there, but like we were talking about this idea of the ugliness. I think as citizens of the world right now, we're being force fed a lot of a lot of ugliness, a, a lot of pride. I feel like on a kind of wider political scale, we're seeing a lot of coarseness and a lot of ugliness in how people treat each other. And it seems like respect and integrity and decency seem to be kind of like old fashioned ideas. There has been a coarsening of how the people above us interact. And I think that just filters down. And I think that was the main reason as to why I wanted to keep this kind of ugliness in because I felt like it was a reflection of what I've been having to see, you know, for the last four or five years. I guess it's a way of trying to kind of make sense of it because you can just let it pass through you, you know. It's rather than having to rationalise it, just present it in its ugliness. I know that some artists choose to go the other way and like avoid, you know, in times of crisis or in times of turbulence, you need something to escape to 
but I've never been that way. I think you don't get stronger by ignoring what you see. You have to come to the real world every day and try to make sense of it rather than hide from it, you know? Mm. Personally, personally, that's what I think. Look, our institutions that are supposed to be looking after us have yeah. been doing a pretty shit job of it. Yeah. And you have vested interests. We do look towards our artists and our musicians mm. and our creative folks and people in theatre to be holding up a mirror and saying, hey, you know, this is what's going on and we don't agree with it. I found like comfort in listening to this album because I'm like, hey, somebody else out there feels the same way. And, you know, and the fact that it sounds good mm. with traps, you know, there's like a playfulness to how you're yeah. telling these stories as well because you're sometimes like an unreliable mm. narrator. Like I think for Rough Justice, I can't tell whether you're you're the oppressor making excuses for your like heinous mm. deeds or whether you're the oppressed. I think it's interesting to think about like in the landscape that we're in, it's hard to ever tell like who's good or who's bad. Like, you know, like there's so many fallen mm. idols as well. Mm. So I really love that Rough Justice and, and mm. In C2, those sorts of songs really took me into that kind of mindset. But for you, when you were writing that, did you ever like grapple with it? Like, oh, are people going to get this or, you know? No, I'm... No, I mean, I feel like um, it wasn't really till late in the process that I thought, oh, I don't know if I've gone too far with this. Mm. But, you know, but then I felt mm. as an artist, I felt like I just had to be true to what it is that I wanted to say. I think that once you start trying to censor yourself, mm. then it's kind of worthless, you know. Mm. There's no room for doubt. I think you just have to do it and then answer the questions afterwards. But I can't start thinking about how things will be perceived or how I have to explain them mm. in interviews mm. like a year later. If it's going to be real, you have to put it down and worry about all that stuff afterwards. Mm. And I think that's what I've always done when writing songs and then explain it away afterwards, you know? I had a lot of time for you. This sense of rage and vitriol is really pointed in the song Callum is a Snake, which is all twitchy and menacing in its soundscape. There's also a particular coarseness in Kelly's delivery. And I had to ask, who is this Callum? Nah, I don't trust him. His eyes are too close together. My plan was to keep my big mouth shut and let the posh boys fuck it up. But he's desperate for a story line and it's not giving up. I know when someone is speaking in black scenes and I know when someone's speaking in verse. It's not really about Callum at all. It's just about knowing that sometimes you have to stand up. Sometimes you have to, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you have to walk over to Chris Rock and, and just slap him really hard in his face because he's insulted your wife. <laughs> That's, uh, it's just that feeling that like, you're not going to let somebody get away with something, you know? You Should Know the Truth is couched as a love song, but on closer listen, it hints at something more sinister. Lines like, Do you remember who you were before? I picked you up on West 44. 
suggest an uneven balance of power at play with this dalliance. You should know the truth, mm. which I really love because it's got that kind of cure-like flavor to it, and then it's got mm. that kind of that childlike quality to the chorus. But you, yeah. but which also fits into the theme of the song, where you say, you know, giving your light to nameless boys, and that just sort of remind me of this whole thing with the Me Too movement, but about the men in power who've like. Abuse young yeah. boys and like the Africa yeah. Mambata thing, and I thought that was like so interesting. But where was your head at when you wrote those lyrics? Was it already in this point of making the album where you kind of had an idea yeah. of what you wanted to go? It's kind of an evolution, isn't it? You, when you start, you don't really have an overview as, as such when making a record, but you know you have you have some things that you like, some instincts that you're following that will take you somewhere and then as the process continues you start writing more songs they start providing a sonic framework a lyrical framework of imagery or subjects or kind of sentiments that you want to explore and then the more you do the more realized it kind of becomes mm. and i think you know you should know the truth was one of the later songs that we wrote in 2019 by that point i, I kind of had the sense there's that Human League song, um, Don't You Want Me Baby? Is, mm -hmm. is that what it's called? Yeah, I, I, yeah. The famous, like the famous one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you want me baby, yeah. Yeah, where, where there's that line about you were working as a waitress, waitress in, a in a cocktail bar. bar. And I just thought that's such a brilliant lyric that alludes to this looking back at this journey that you've gone on with someone after the fortune and after, and after your world has changed, but looking back at the people you were before... That And I think that was kind of something that, I guess that was something that I kind of saw in this song, this sense of like the people that you were before your world changed. Because it's like like now, I can barely remember, you know, like who, who I was before kind of the success of Block Party. I, I feel like I've intentionally forgotten that part of my life. I guess there was an appeal in trying to explore that sense of, coming to the end of a journey with someone that you used to love. This journey on Alpha Games concludes with the song Peace Offering, but it provides no satisfying happy ending. The sense of disillusionment still hangs heavy in the air. The album closes with um, the peace offering, which yeah. for me is really just talking about reparations because like, I feel like the way you've structured the album, it's like a movie yeah. within a movie. So, you know, it, it kind of starts with the first song is sort of like that little brother, yeah. big brother. It, it It's like this warring factions and, and it kind of posits this idea out there. Like, you know, will we let our better selves prevail in the end mm. you know will we go down this route where we'll be like the most ugliest parts of ourselves and then it shows all the different facets of this ugliness that's out there oh. and then ever so often you have like touches of beauty or moments of like oh you know life isn't so bad and then you come to a song like um i think it's of things yeah. yet to come no i think it's the other song we were talking when like when it, you get caught okay, yeah. it's like okay now i've done this i've put this mm. deed out there and whatever happens Happens, what happens and then you ended up with peace offering which is like when all is said and uh, I just want what's fair yeah. out there and like all these things have been taken from us like you're talking about reparations but was it how a is that like what the song is about and b is like how did you structure the album I mean that's so comprehensive that's so interesting to hear you say that because you know it's like what I said at the start speaking to, to journalists right now it's so fascinating to hear how they interpret everything just because I'm the author and I have my intentions it doesn't mean that mm. it negates how anybody else sees the work of art you know because you are working with your subconscious as well a lot so 
you know, you have no idea how the connections will manifest for people. Mm. I guess on some level, I always knew that Day Drinker was going to, I always wanted it to open the record because it seemed to mm. encapsulate this idea of conflict, of, you know, two people that should be close being engaged in this kind of bitter conflict. And I guess by the time you get to Peace Offering, it's, that conflict has disappeared and like the rage isn't there anymore, but there's just a cold, dispassionate feeling net there. Um, yeah. And yeah, I see like from Day Drinker to Peace offer- Offering, you're seeing all these different examples of characters behaving in, in, in awful ways to each other. By Peace Offering, it's they're finally stepping away. There's no more emotion or anger. It's just this cold, dispassionate stare. Mm. I remember how you walked And I see now what was really at stake. So when we meet again at the crossroads and you see me the way I see you, there will be no bitterness. Just next time, doing this for 20 years Mm. and uh, you know and in between you've gone off and you've done your musical you've done solo work and you know you've written books um so you've been creating Mm. art all this time you know but like what drives you to do this because do you ever get a moment when you're like I don't think I want to do this anymore either it's the public scrutiny or just like having to deal with people, you know, just like all of it. Do you ever have a moment where you're like, I I don't want to do this anymore? Or is it just something that's such a big part of like your life and just who you are and how you process the world? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting you ask that question. It's a great question. I mean, I feel, I don't know. I feel, do I ever feel like I don't want to do this anymore? No. I mean, I still feel like this job is a blessing. Being able to mm-hmm. pull ideas out of the air and put them down on paper or on tape or into the computer and and then you have like a, a finished, realised song or a work of art. It's like such a magical gift that I'm able to do this in my lifetime. Even speaking to you now, you know, like mm-hmm. just just listening to what you said on the question before, about how you saw the journey of the of the record, how you interpreted this art that I've made, mm. like it, it still makes me feel very privileged that I get to do this, and that's why I do it. You know, it's not about kind of money or success or fame. It, it you know, and it, and, it, and it never has been. It's just been about wanting to make things that you think are good art that deserves to be explored in my lifetime and possibly after I'm not here. That's kind of what's giving me a kick at the moment is the sense that this is the sixth block party album that I've made. It's what the 11th album that I've made in total. And just to think that one day Mm. there's going to be this body of work that people will be able to, to like dip in and out of, that people will be able to see connections between records and songs and kind of whatnot. It just, that's just such a magical thought to me. Don't get me wrong, there are aspects of this this kind of lifestyle that, that aren't so enjoyable, but at the same token, it's it's a gift, mm. you know, that comes with a price. And, like, I get that. You take it in the same breath as the things that you do enjoy, and <laughs> I'm just happy to keep going and to talk to the people that want to listen to me. Listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Kelly Okureki from Block Party. This episode was produced by me, Celine Tioblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfin. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Additional music from Lily Sloan. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis Hahn. 
Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com or get a copy of our 20th anniversary print issue. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time.